Grassroots, True Grit. This is Shenango Voice. Visit our website at shenangovoice.com, and if you enjoy our programming, share a link to our podcast with your friends. This episode of Shenango Voice is sponsored by the Bohemian Moon Restaurant at 103 East Main Street in Norwich, New York, now serving the Shenango County community with take-home comfort food and indoor dining. Lunch and dinner Monday through Saturday with lunches from 11 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. and dinner from 5 to 8.30 p.m. To order or reserve a table, call 607-334-9480. The weekly menu can be downloaded from their website at twobakeriesandarestaurant.com. Just click the link to Bohemian Moon at the top of the page. Hello again, everyone. My name is Mark Finero, and I'm the technical director of Shenango Voice, a local public service podcast. Our mission is to inform, connect, and inspire Shenango County, New York with information and stories that bring out the best in our community. Shenango Voice came into existence just ahead of the coronavirus pandemic. Due to New York's current social distancing recommendations, we've adjusted our intended format, opting to perform interviews online instead of recording in our dedicated podcasting studio. As a result, we're sacrificing some audio quality for now to keep our participants safe and bring you timely information. We've got a big episode for you today with updates on three stories that we've been monitoring closely since the beginning of the COVID shutdown in March. All three stories share a similar theme, and that's massive amounts of invisible work that have gone into building new infrastructures and streamlined services that are now caring for our community. It's just one chapter in the larger story of Shenango changing for the better as the result of the COVID challenge. Progress at county planning on the broadband front, awards at UHS Shenango Memorial Hospital, and finally, at the Area Agency on Aging, wait for it, robots. You won't want to miss this one. Our first segment features an interview with Shane Butler, Director of Planning at the Shenango County Department of Planning and Development. The interview, recorded by Shenango Voice producer Diane Gallo on September 17, 2020, updates the painstaking groundwork needed to build a larger regional network and prepare the county to expand rural broadband services. Hi, this is Diane Gallo with Shenango Voice. We're here today with Shane Butler, Director of Planning at the Shenango County Department of Planning and Development, for an update on the broadband and connectivity story. Hi, Shane. Would you give us an overview of what's been happening since we last spoke with you in June? So we started a regional collaborative for broadband. It encompasses Broome, Shenango, Cortland, Delaware. We've recently added some areas of Tompkins County as well. This past Tuesday, the 15th, we had our first information session, and that was mainly focused on municipal leaders. Originally, we were going to try and get that focused on the school districts, but because of everything going on and them going back to school and you know trying to figure out how this school year is going to happen, we kind of flipped the script a little bit and we decided to go with the municipalities first. So what we've done so far is we've sent a request to municipalities and school districts to give us an idea, you know, mark it up on a map where they're seeing the gaps of service for broadband. So we sent it out to the 49 different school districts. We've sent it to the municipalities and asked them to get that information back as soon as possible so that we can pair it with other information that we know 
to give a good overview, a good map that shows where the gaps in the service are currently. So we did that, like I said, on Tuesday. We just released a press release today, which kind of documents what that information session was about and what we're doing. If you go to southerntier8.org backslash broadband 2020, um, that is our website where you know it tells about our purpose, why this is so important, why are we doing this now, um, how we're going to meet the challenge, and kind of like our program timeline and who you should contact in your respective community to find out more. So if you wanted to find out more, would you, like, for example, if I were an interested citizen, interested in rattling the cage to try to get myself some better broadband service, would I be going to that website? I would, yep. So they're going to be your representatives for your county of who is on that committee representing you. You don't need to necessarily constantly ask them for questions. You know, we are working on this. It's going to be a slow process, as is everything. As far as funding, you know, we don't know what funding sources are still going to be available. That's going to be a moving target for us. But we want to be prepared ahead of time. So that way, once those funding opportunities are released, we can then move quickly. Typically, when grants become available, those entities only give us around a month or two to apply. So if we don't have that background information, if we don't have those maps of where the gaps are, it's going to take us a lot longer than 30 days, 60 days to come up with that data and apply for the grant. So we're being proactive. We're trying to get that information. Congressman's office did a survey not too long ago, which really showed where those gaps of service are. They did speed tests for different um, residents. Uh, residents did, a, did um, supply that information based on testing that they did from home. So we're using that data. Rather than doing a constituent survey, we want to use that information that's already available to us to find that information. I have a question regarding the congressman's survey. That would be Brindisi? It is, yep. So they did a survey where um, constituents could go on their website, take the survey, and part of that survey included a speed test. So basically you click on a link and internally between your internet and their internet, wherever this happens, I'm not sure all the technicalities, it shows what your speed was. So everybody that took that survey took a speed test. So that way all that information was compiled so they could get an average speed upload and download for all the different areas within the district. In that study, you can see how our congressional district is slower than anywhere else in New York State. Well, we should get a prize for that, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> well, literally, we could get the snail prize, yeah. the Golden Snail Award. <laughs> I was thinking before we spoke of, of asking you to talk a little bit about a, a, a word or a term you used when we last spoke, which was build-out. When I think of build-out, I think of, you know, you've done all your planning, you've done all your design work, you know, those are the first steps. The actual build-out is actually implementing and putting in those physical assets. So whether it be installing an antenna or putting cable in the ground, that is the actual build-out. Um, the design work, the planning ahead of time to me isn't build-out, that's preparation work. When you talked about having a call for proposals that only have a one or two month window of response time, 
that strikes me as cruel and unusual punishment. I, 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 I'm really shocked by that, knowing how long that it takes to pull together a real proposal as opposed to a boilerplate. Right. And that's why, you know, it's, it's difficult. A lot of the state and federal grants, there are very quick turnaround deadlines that we have to meet. And there's a lot of regulations. There's a lot of paperwork that has to go in and be involved with this. So typically, you know, my job, we do a lot with housing grants. And when those housing grants become available that we can apply for, there are certain requirements where we might have to have a resolution by the county board signed and done before we can apply. Well, the county process doesn't always work that quickly because of committee meetings that are monthly and board meetings that are monthly. So some of these deadlines become increasingly difficult to meet because of those time frame and uh, the requirements that are needed. So that's why we're saying, you know, we want to prepare ahead of time. So if we can have a lot of this legwork done ahead of time, it makes our jobs easier once that funding becomes available to just basically copy and paste our ideas, budgets, plans, and then we're not doing all this running around trying to make this happen quickly. Now, you said something that really interested me. And one of the questions we have now is our internet speed low because people have lower incomes and can't afford the higher services? Or is it because people don't have access to the services? I think that's one of the questions we've had at our regional collaborative is the Brindisi study was great, but at the same time, it does still pose questions. So, you know, Shango County was very low in speeds. But is that necessarily because it's not available or the price is at a point where people just can't afford it? So there was still that question that really couldn't be answered based on the data that was in that study. It's hard to put all these little dots together trying to really understand what really is happening as opposed to what the guesstimates of what could be happening. Right. And see, <laughs> Like my office has a pretty good connection with Congressman Brindisi's office. So a lot of times we let them have that information. And, you know, if we have questions about it, we'd rather reach out to them than try and come up with an answer that we're not entirely sure about. Well, I'm delighted that your efforts are being rewarded with a regional council. It must feel very good to have partners to help push forward and to take a little piece of the action. How is that playing for you? Oh, it's great. We have all the planning directors from those counties. We have the economic developers. So for instance, for Shenango County, we have myself, Carrie Green from Commerce Shenango, and Matt Beckwith from the County Emergency Management. So we're all, you know, representing Shenango County on this because we see this as many different issues. So from Carrie's perspective, this is big time economic development. From Matt's perspective, this is an emergency management not only for internet, but also because of cell phone service. We all have our different specialties and we're bringing those to the table to try and solve this. Well, thank you, Shane. Do you have any other looking forward bits in the next, say, three to six months? How is the snail going to (laughs) be? We'll be having some additional information sessions. Some of them will be more tailored to certain organizations. So we want the public to be involved In some cases, we're trying to get information from certain groups. So we're going to do some things kind of separately. Um, But there will be some additional information sessions later in the year where um, we'll be letting the public know what we're working on and what we've kind of come up with. 
Can I ask you, Shane, to give us that website that you gave us at the beginning of the program where people can go and um, place comments or questions? They can't place comments or questions, but their website is southerntier8.org backslash broadband 2020. There is our purpose statement, um, why we're working on this, um, why is it important, why is the time now, and how we're going to meet this challenge by coming together. Well, thank you very much, Shane. I appreciate your time again. I appreciate all your work. It's really lovely to see it come together and see it you know, integrate and move and the whole the whole massive system groans and begins to creak <laughs> and change gear. And it's very nice. Yeah, it's nice when all the work and time spent starts to come together. Okay, well, I will be calling you again, I suppose, in a few months just to check in. And I'll be following the story steadily and look forward to talking with you again soon. Okay, sounds good. All right. Thank you, Shane. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Our second segment highlights the exciting changes and events at UHS Shenango Memorial Hospital in Norwich, New York, as it emerges from months of intensive change, both in the facility and in operations. This interview with Melissa Stagnaro was recorded via Skype on September 11, 2020, by Shenango Voice producer Diane Gallo. This is Diane Gallo with Shenango Voice. Today, we're talking with Melissa Stagnaro, Director of Fundraising and Business Development at UHS Shenango Memorial Hospital in Norwich, New York. Melissa, we have been talking for several months and tracking the developments and uh, the events that have been happening at the hospital. And from what I understand, we have an exciting week at the hospital. And I'm wondering if you'd give us an overview of what's happening. Hi, Diane. It's so wonderful to be with you today. Yes, we are having a very exciting week here at UHS Shenango Memorial Hospital. Earlier this week, uh, the first steel was placed um, as part of our Shenango Medical Neighborhood Project. Uh, we are building a new emergency room and uh, walk-in center. We're very excited about that. Um, we're also in about 12 hours going to be going live with EPIC, which is a new system-wide electronic medical record system that is replacing all of the kind of smaller systems that we use. So that's a, a massive uh, endeavor. And uh, just last night, we were named Shenango County's Nonprofit of the Year. So um, we are so um, just honored by that recognition. Uh, we feel that it's a direct result of the amazing work that all of our caregivers do. And um, it is because of them that our um, patients and their families uh, place their trust in us every day. And, you know, we have a 108 year mission um, at this hospital to care for our community. And, you know, we wouldn't be able to do that without these wonderful caregivers that work throughout our organization. Congratulations, Melissa, and to everybody who works at UHS Shenango Memorial Hospital. Thank you. I would like to get your update, the COVID update. Can you give us an overview of how things are going? Absolutely. I'll start by giving an update uh, with some numbers from the Shenango County Health Department. Um, as of today, um, here in Shenango County, we have 10 active cases 
There are 114 people on active quarantine. Uh, we have one person that's in the hospital. Um, and all told, over the last six months, we've had 242 lab-confirmed cases in our community. 210 people have recovered, and um, sadly, seven people have died as a result of COVID. From that report, it sounds like we have been incredibly lucky. And it's a little bit more than luck, I know that. You said something earlier about being three weeks ahead of the curve. You know, I think that we, um, as a community, have been incredibly fortunate. When you um, look at the numbers that we, we have compared to many other communities in our state and, and across this country, but when we, when we first talked in April, you know, we really feared that the number was going to be much higher than that. And uh, I think uh, part of that can be credited to the fact that I believe we were about three weeks behind New York City in terms of when we reported our first case. So we were really ahead of the curve um, because we, um, you know, we did shut down as a community. And um, I think that really made all of the difference. Um, certainly our community probably lends itself better to social distancing than New York City. You know, I think that, that even now our businesses, our schools, everybody's working so hard to put procedures in place um, to make sure that they're keeping um, illness, particularly COVID, out of their settings. Uh, but of course, our long-term success depends on what everybody's doing outside of that, um, you know, that nine to five, you know, how we're behaving um, it, on the evenings and the weekends. Many people are starting to gather with their friends and families. Um, we're looking at uh, here in our area, all eyes have been on Oneonta the last few weeks with the uh, the uh, huge influx of cases that they saw over there as a result of, uh, of SUNY Oneonta. That's a big reminder for us, right, that we have to be careful um, and that we have to stay diligent, especially now, uh, especially with uh, flu season, uh, you know, almost upon us. Um, we have to be very careful. Mentioning flu season, I've seen a lot of advertising about get your flu shot. And I'm thinking, well, I'm wearing a mask. Won't I just not get flu because I'm wearing a mask? And is a flu shot really necessary? So can you give me the thinking on that? We definitely recommend that everyone gets a flu shot. All of our staff is required, um, and we've actually already started doing that. Um, we encourage people, even if you normally get a flu shot, to make sure you're getting it early this year. Um, and I think there's a, a few reasons behind that. Um, one, some of the symptoms of the flu are very similar to COVID. Um, we'd hate for someone to say, oh, I just have the flu and um, not get tested for COVID, not take the necessary precautions. Um, and certainly, um, we wouldn't want anyone to um, end up with both of those viruses at the same time. And right now, uh, New York State has actually um, released some emergency um, regulations that all hospitals and nursing homes will now have to test anyone that has symptoms of either of those diseases. So if you think you might have the flu, um, we're going to have to do not just a flu test, uh, but also a COVID test. I believe that all of the settings that you can typically get a flu shot, whether it's from your doctor or your pharmacy, um, usually the public health department does some flu clinics as well. So I think there'll, there'll be a lot of opportunities, probably increased opportunities this year uh, for people to get their flu shot. 
I can't speak for um, anyone in private practice, but any and any of our care settings. So that's our emergency department, our outpatient clinics, um, whether you're an inpatient here, um, any setting. Uh, if you come in with present with symptoms of either uh, the flu or COVID, you'll need to get both tests. That's a requirement that the, that the state um, has, has put on us. You mentioned uh, the diligence required to prevent bringing anything into the hospital and mentioned what goes on in the workplace, but then translating the vigilance home. So can you give an overview of what that vigilance looks like? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, since the very beginning, we instituted very strict screening processes in all of our facilities. Every single employee, when they come to work, we have our temperature taken, we have to fill out. Um, there's, there's an actual screener that we interface with that, um, you know, asks us a series of questions about symptoms, about travel, and everything like that. Um, that process has evolved greatly over the last six months. In the beginning, we were redeploying staff. So in, in certain areas, we weren't allowed to have elective procedures. So a lot of our operating room and ambulatory surgery staff was redeployed to, the, to these areas and, and from our outpatient clinics. Um, and now we've actually created a new position uh, to, to do this screening function. So um, because we know that we're in this for a while, for the long haul with that screening process. And of course, since the end of June, we've been living under the New York State Travel Authority. Um, we had actually started a process uh, related to travel before that with all of our staff because um, we just wanted to know where people were going so we could watch you know, where the hot spots were, and, and we continue to manage that process very closely. And I really feel that people within our organization, you know, everybody understands the importance of what we're doing and why we're doing it. It's to keep each other safe. It's to keep our patients safe, our residents safe. Um, so, you know, and we constantly reinforce that message. I know this has been a long six months. I think when we when we first talked, we didn't know how long it was going to last, but I don't think anybody really thought um, that it would be six months that we'd still be under this. And I know that it's, it's tough, right? We've missed that human interaction with our family and friends, but we have to stay vigilant. We have to, you know, keep wearing the masks. We have to keep washing our hands. Um, we have to stay socially distanced. I know that's hard. I'm a hugger. Um, <laughs> so, it, you know, those are things that are difficult. And it was easier in the beginning because uh, we weren't seeing anybody. No events were happening. Um, even when we went to the store, everybody was like, let me get in and like, let me get out. Um, but it's different now. So it's hard when you go to an event, even if there's all of the, the socially distanced, um, you know, all of those precautions are being taken and in place. It's hard when you get around that, you, you know, the friend that you haven't seen in six months, it's hard not to hug them. Um, it's hard when you see somebody else that's already taken their mask off for you to keep yours on. But you feel like a stick in the mud. But let me tell you, I don't want anyone I know to get COVID. It's hard not to hug the UPS man. 
human beings are social creatures. You know, we're, we're not used to, I have, I have an inner hermit that to a certain extent has enjoyed um, not having to go to things in the evening, you know, um, to be able to have low key weekends doing things around the house, but it's hard not to be social, especially after six months. Could you blend a little bit of virtual visits with business as usual so like as you have come back online and everything has been put into place what is the status as it stands now you know i don't think that there will ever be business as usual again at, at least what it was maybe in february i think it's more of a new normal and it's really going to continue to evolve we're very fortunate to be able to provide all of the services that we were providing before all of this happened but everything's going to look a little bit different you know right now um, for any uh, surgeries or procedures people do have to get a COVID test first we've worked out the kinks um, <laughs> in that process to, to a large extent um, we were so fortunate to be able to get our virtual visits up and running very quickly at the beginning of this. They have been um, quite literally a lifeline. People who um, weren't able to leave their homes or uncomfortable leaving their homes because of COVID have been able to continually get the care that they need throughout this process. In the beginning, we were seeing that people were avoiding seeking care and, and that was really scary for us. You know, we don't want anyone uh, to fall ill uh, or to uh, to die because they weren't able to get the care that they that they need um, when they need it. So um, you know, virtual visits have have been wonderful. I think that it's going to be incredibly important, especially this flu season. You know, as we've already discussed, um, and, it, and just in the winters in general. You know, our, our community, uh, many people live in a rural setting. Um, transportation can be an issue. Um, and some of that, maybe people don't have their own transportation or just winter roads. They don't want to be out and about on them. So virtual visits can really help bridge that gap. Uh, certainly, there are situations where you need to be present, a broken bone, uh, your regular physical. It's important for your physician to see you um, certain times of the year. Uh, certainly when you need an immunization, uh, that can't happen virtually. It really is uh, going to be a wonderful tool for us moving forward. Um, and um, and there's some really exciting, you know, I mentioned Epic before. Uh, a huge part of that is uh, is called MyChart, uh, which will allow people um, much easier access to their medical records, test results, and things like that. In many practices, they'll actually be able to schedule their own appointment. And they'll also be able to use that as a way of communicating uh, with their provider um, or the nurse in the office. So um, it's that's really going to be wonderful as well. Clearly, there are challenges. We know that not all areas of our county have broadband access. Um, cell service um, is also an issue in some areas. I know at, at my home, there's <laughs> there's no cell service, and, um, and you know some people don't have may not have the technology to be able to take advantage of these things. And some people aren't comfortable um, using that technology, even if they have it. So that's why it's important that we're able to offer both the in-person visits and the virtual side of things. Altogether, I've got this summary of taking care of yourself, the basics, wash your hands, wear your mask, bump elbows, bump hips, bump whatever you need to bump, but put a mask on, meet outside <laughs> in small groups, 
hopefully someday we'll come up with drive up flu shots and we're doing you're doing the drive up covid testing now so that that could be a real thing yeah and um prepare for your outdoor gatherings so that you can have the fire pit ready and and the, the several layers of blankets that you're going to offer <laughs> ready for your um extended covid season this has been such a pleasure to talk with you, Melissa. It's been really fun. I appreciate your time. I congratulate you and the staff on uh, your award from Commerce Shenango for Nonprofit of the Year. Thank you so much for your time today. Diane, thank you so much. And finally, in our third segment, we get an update from Brian Wessels of the Shenango County Area Agency on the Aging. The interview, recorded on September 14, 2020, with Shenango Voice producer Diane Gallo, reviews the agency's newly streamlined services and reveals a surprising new way that robotics are helping some of the county's most isolated seniors deal with loneliness. This is Diane Gallo with Shenango Voice. We're here today with Brian Wessels, director of the Shenango County Area Agency on Aging. We're here for an update from an interview we did on April 28th, 2020. At that time, Brian described how the county was reshaping its operations to continue delivering services during Governor Cuomo's COVID-19 stay-at-home order. Now, almost five months later, we're back to check in with Brian for a status report. Hey, Brian, how are you doing today? Good, Diane. How about you? I'm great. Thank you. I'm interested in your overview of what's happened during and just now after the lockdown as we are finding our way to our new normal. Well, it's certainly been interesting times the last uh, handful of months. Um, I think for the agency on aging, the biggest adjustment for us is the the demands of still providing services for clients and finding um, different ways to make sure that we continue to provide those services. Um, we've had to adjust our nutrition program, specifically the home delivered meal program. We've had to adjust our approach to case management um, and it's had some impact on some other services that we provide. The lockdown has made us be more resourceful and figure some things out um, because we certainly have had to continue to provide our level of services. When we spoke the last time at the end of April, you had a caseload of approximately 600. How is that number now? It's down a little bit. It's um, not, not much different, probably in the high 500s. Um, we did have folks who transitioned off of services from us. They were folks who came to us during the peak of COVID-19 because they had a, a very high nutritional need and they didn't want to go out to grocery shop or they didn't have family that could help them out with that. So um, that was the, the increase that we experienced was primarily for nutrition. And as the pandemic has slowed down a little bit, some of those folks feel more comfortable in going out and grocery shopping or their families are more readily available to help them out. So not, not much of a change. I mean, yeah, 600 back in April, maybe 580 or so in that neighborhood. 
in a way, it's exciting because you can see the responsiveness of the agency being able to move forward to the need, absorb it, deliver the service, and then open up and release when the, the clients no longer need it. And it's the perfect function. Yeah, I think so. I think I was super glad that we were able to accommodate that influx of folks um, that needed services that reached out to us. And then it's also nice to know that when people are comfortable and feel like the set of circumstances around them uh, allow for them to say, okay, I'm good. I can, I can do this on my own, or I can use those informal supports, family or neighbors again for the needs that I have. So yeah, I think it worked out well. Regarding the status of uh, the meal service, when we last spoke, you were just getting ready to deploy the National Guard to deliver meals, and now you have a little different situation. Can you tell us what's going on there? Right, yeah. The National Guard worked out well for us. Again, we went two weeks of shelf-stable meals that they would deliver around the county. We actually resumed our, what I'll call, normal hot and frozen meal service through the agency starting on back on June 29th. The National Guard was able to come in at a time where they were super helpful in getting us to continue on with serving the clients. But I'm happy to say that as of the 29th of June, we're back delivering our, I'll say, normal meals to folks. And our volunteers are back in place. We're using volunteers. We provide the volunteers with masks and hand sanitizer. We ask them to sanitize between visits. Um, so yeah, um, if, if we can use the term normal, I would say, yeah, we're back to a, a normal food distribution process again, which is nice. And I'm sure the people who volunteer for the programs are happy to have their jobs back. I bet they are. And I know that they all appreciated why we asked them to stop for the time being, but I know that they're happy to be back. It's part of their lives. It gives them a spark to be able to go and volunteer and help out seniors in our county. So, yes. When you use the volunteers, I'm wondering, the volunteers important in helping you to keep track of how people are, how individuals are. Can you talk a little bit about that, uh, that role? The volunteers are um, critical in us keeping an outlook on, on clients. They're an extra set of eyes and ears for the agency and for the clients and their families. So yeah, it's not just delivering a, a hot meal with a cold pack of, of food. It's also making sure that they're doing okay and answering the door and helping out, um, helping us make sure that people are okay. The county office building is not quite open entirely yet, and you have a system of dropping off papers. You're, you're developing a system for your logistics. So you're right. The county office building is still closed to the public. Um, the, there's two entrances that are staffed by uh, Shenango County Sheriff's uh, staff, whether they're corrections people or they're actually deputies. So they're there to kind of control the flow uh, in and out of the building. The building is still closed to the public. The Sheriff's office has staff members at the two entrances of the building to kind of help with controlling the flow of appointments in and out of the building. 
So how it works for us is we have scheduled appointments with clients. Um, we have to be aware of uh, staggering the appointments throughout the day to make sure that we don't have too many people in the office at any given time. Um, so that lends to the whole social distancing, um, wearing masks, um, being aware of of the number of people in the building at any given time. So, But it is nice to have the option to have people come in. Sometimes just a telephone call really just doesn't do, um, it doesn't really benefit the client. They really need to see somebody. So to be able to offer that option of an appointment is great for us. You told me in an earlier conversation, I had asked about people who were dealing with loneliness during the lockdown. And I think that some people might be celebrating, say, well, now you know how it feels. Like, this is how I live. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about uh, any programs that or, or things that you did in order to mitigate that problem. There's three things that I would like to highlight. The first thing that happened and is continuing to happen is our outreach staff are making phone calls to clients on a fairly routine basis, uh, just as a friendly phone call, just a a telephone assurance. How are you doing? Do you need anything? Are your services going well? Those kinds of things. So that is all those case managed clients of ours are, are receiving phone calls from our staff and just checking in on how they're doing, which is, um, I think, a nice nice thing to be able to do. The second thing is that we have a nice relationship with the Alzheimer's Association. They have a fabulous website um, to help families with some strategies um, related to COVID-19. If they're a caregiver or family member of someone who has uh, dementia or memory issues, the Alzheimer's website is a really nice website. Um, and that's alz.org. That's alz.org. And the last thing that I'd like to highlight is that the State Office for Aging piloted a program around the state. It was an animatronic pet program, and it was cats and dogs that are robotic. They're small, they're lap-sized, and they meow and they bark. And if you pet them, they respond to the pets with a, you know, a meow or a purr um, or a bark or whatever. Um, And we received eight of those um, pets and we circulated them to, I would say, some of our higher need clients, folks that are quite isolated, maybe dealing with some depression and loneliness. So um, we're hoping for another round of receiving more of those pets um, because they were a hit. They were just such a blessing to be able to have and be able to get those distributed. And if if people are interested in purchasing those privately or on their own, I'll tell you the website. It's um, This is all together, joyforall.com. So J-O-Y-F-O-R-A-L-L.com. And um, I think they're pretty reasonably priced. And um, but again, we're we're hoping to get another round of those pets. So again, we we can't be everything to everyone all the time, but again, I think we are very aware of the issue of loneliness and depression and um, have tried to tried our best to help folks that are clients of our agency. 
We've been here with Brian Wessels of the Shenango County Area Agency on Aging. Brian, I have a, a last thought. In the last interview, I asked you about volunteers, and you made a beautiful pitch for volunteers, which we weren't able to use because it was the time of COVID and nobody could volunteer and come in and do anything. So I said, all right, we have to cut time. So I cut that. Now I'm wondering if we can do a little toggle. Is there a mechanism within your office that could accept donations of these toys directly? It seems like a nice opportunity just to put a little pitch in. Is there a mechanism? Well, so the Agency on Aging always is uh, accepting of contributions to the agency. So if somebody wanted to make a monetary donation to the Agency on Aging, they could actually designate it for the animatronic pet program. And we could then use those funds that we receive to buy additional pets. So yes, just make a contribution to the Shenango County Area Agency on Aging. All right, Brian, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Diane. That concludes this episode of Shenango Voice. We hope you enjoyed our program. Please subscribe using your favorite podcast application so that you can be notified when our next episode is published. This episode of Shenango Voice is sponsored by the Bohemian Moon Restaurant at 103 East Main Street in Norwich, New York now serving the Shenango County community with take-home comfort food and indoor dining. Lunch and dinner Monday through Saturday with lunches from 11 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. and dinner from 5 to 8.30 p.m. To order or reserve a table, call 607-334-9480. The weekly menu can be downloaded from their website at twobakeriesandarestaurant.com. Just click the link to Bohemian Moon at the top of the page. Thank you for listening.